Hi everyone, Dan Cassidy here. Welcome to How Should I Be Positioned on the UBS Market Moves podcast channel. On this podcast, we do like to catch up with the UBS Chief Investment Office and our Industry Asset Manager partners for a discussion on the markets as well as a timely debate on macro developments, outlooks, and asset allocation views. So joining us for the conversation today, glad to welcome back Jason Dreho, the Head of Asset Allocation Americas with the UBS. Chief Investment Office, as well as Dr. David Kelly of J.P. Morgan Asset Management. David is the Chief Global Strategist, as well as the Head of the Global Markets Insight Strategy Team with J.P. Morgan Asset Management. So Jason, David, it's great to be back with you both. Plenty to talk about, a lot going on in the market. So looking forward to hearing your insights. And thank you for spending some time with our listeners today. Very happy to be here. Yeah, thank you, Dan. Good to be here. Absolutely. So, David, I know there has been much debate across the industry as to whether the U.S. economy is in store for a soft or hard landing. So, from your vantage point, David, how do you see the economic landscape here in the U.S. taking shape over the next six months? It's a very close call. Um, I write something for LinkedIn every week, and I wrote something this morning uh, entitled The Rollover Race. Because really, we think both growth and inflation are going to roll over in the next few months. The question is, which rolls over first? Uh, now, what it looks like is the second quarter, we've probably got decent economic growth. I, I think the, the economy did grow in the second quarter. It'll grow more slowly in the third. We still think it's growing. Fourth quarter is looking more dicey. The problem is that you know, sentiment is very low. Consumers are, are being being stretched by high gasoline prices. We've got um, huge drag as the deficit comes down. Um, we've got uh, mortgage rates, which are double what they were at the start of the year. Uh, we've got a dollar, which is too high, which is dragging an export. So all this is really slowing the economy down. But it does have some momentum coming out of the pandemic still. And there's also an excess demand for labor, and we've got pent-up demand for various consumer goods and cars. So it's a, it's a really weird situation. I think growth can hang in there for the rest of this year, although weakening all the time. Inflation, though, I think is going to roll over more quickly, actually. I think that the CPI print for June is going to be strong. The CPI print for July is going to be strong. And then it's going to roll over because we're already seeing a very sharp decline in commodity prices in recent weeks. We're seeing um, some signs that airline fares are topping off here, maybe used car prices are topping off. So I can see inflation rolling over. So, so is that a soft landing or a hard landing? I, it's, it's certainly a landing. Um, and I think... You know, it's, uh, unfortunately, there is a significant risk of recession. I'd call it about a 50-50 on a recession starting in the next 12 months. Um, it's no better than that. That, 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 could, that could well happen. Um, but I think for, for investors, it's, it's probably best to, you know, don't focus too much on that. Recognize the economy is going to be soft. Growth is going to slow down. The Fed's going to have to back off at some stage from its uh, hawkishness because I think inflation is going to come down also. And we should just sort of look forward uh, a few years to realize we'll probably end up back in a slow growth, lower inflation uh, environment, uh, whatever the, 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 you know, the cyclical outcome is in the short run here. Thank you, David, for that perspective. Jason, the timing of this question works out well for this particular conversation. I know within the most recent UBS house view for the month of July, CIO outlines a few scenarios and assigns probabilities for each as to how the environment might play out over the second half. What's your thinking here, Jason? 
Well, actually, I think it's just pretty similar to what David outlined. You know, we have actually four scenarios that sort of, you know, for the next six to 12 months. One would be soft landing, one is slump, hard landing, recession, I think it's all the same kind of term. And then a couple other things like in terms of a, like a reflation Goldilocks scenario, everything goes right, and then something that's more stagflation. We lean a little more in terms of the probability between soft landing and, say, the recession, like 40 to 30%, so more than a little more than 50% chance of a soft landing. But a key part of that is, you know, is ultimately the Fed sort of stops or doesn't hike as much as it's currently forecasting, which is to take the Fed funds rate up to 3.8% pretty much by the second quarter of next year. If it goes that far, good chance that, you know, I think the recession becomes the more likely scenario by, by next year. So a key part of our assumption is that the Fed pulls back for reasons that David alluded to, like growth is sort of slowing. That's going to force them to, to, to ease back because of the concerns about the labor market, but also inflation falls enough such they can kind of have justification for, for easing off. So it is a leaning one in direction, but I think, you know, very much sort of in, in similar kind of, you know, you know toss up camp. It's, there's a lot of factors that are going on that you know, makes it hard to have, I think, really pound the table conviction um, because it could, it could really come down to you know, the Fed pivoting at an unexpected point in time. Um, but one question I know, David, is sort of something I sort of think about. It. It's interesting like, how it can maybe flip the scenarios. It goes to the, the consumer mm-hmm. because there's a lot of you know, kind of thoughts that you know, the consumer is relatively resilient. We hear these numbers of $2 trillion plus in excess savings. Yet income ratios are you know the best they've been in a couple of decades, like all these kind of positives on on the household. And that's that resiliency will provide you know, support and sort of resistance to, to the downside. <clears throat> but it feels like there's a double edged sword that and that, you know, okay, that's great. That sort of near term reduces the risk of a recession. But if the economy if, if the consumer spending holds up, it, the economy might not slow enough, inflation might not fall enough, it actually just forces the Fed to become even more aggressive. So good near term, but ultimately the problem doesn't sort of resolve itself because they just sort of persist the inflation issues. I tend to think that, you know, it's better to have consumers that are in good shape than bad shape. Um, but I can see sort of both sides of the point. So I'm just curious, like how much do you, how resilient do you think consumers will, will be? Um, and is there actually sort of a, a negative in terms of like good data, good resiliency is actually bad for the markets because it just means more aggressive Fed hiking? Yeah, I, I think that consumers are in a little bit more trouble than people realize uh, it, because I think the the issue really is it's very much across the income spectrum. Uh, Low-income consumers got uh, significant aid through the pandemic. You got all these one-time stimulus checks. You got the enhanced unemployment benefits, enhanced benefits for um, gig workers. You had the child tax credit, which was refundable. All that was pumping money into the low-income consumer sector. And that actually pushed up spending in things like food um, or basic consumer goods. Uh, And... That, that's the group that's being really squeezed right now by high food inflation, high energy prices, and sort of a sudden cutoff of all this government aid. So I think we're seeing a fair amount of weakness in that part of consumer spending is already beginning to, to, to manifest itself. I think you could see that in the retail sales numbers down three-tenths of a percent um, in June Oh, sorry, in May. I think also uh, it is true the consumers you know, haven't rolled over entirely at the start of this year, but what happened was during the pandemic, they paid down their credit cards. And if you look at credit card debt, it uh, sank, which is very unusual, and then it rebounded very strongly, and it's almost back to where it would have been if it stayed on its pre-pandemic trend. So I think people use that money to give them some some uh, room to maneuver here, but I think they're kind of running out of that that. Um, that room. So I, I agree with you that, uh, you know, I think strong consumer, uh, consumer spending would probably keep the, the Fed in, 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 or could keep the Fed in tightening mode here. Uh, but I, I think that 
if you look at the consumer confidence numbers, it really is a sign that a lot of people really are under some stress here and they are going to have to cut back on their spending. David, just to stick with the Fed for a few moments, as our listeners know, the Fed has carried out historic policy measures in recent time, of course, in an effort to combat inflationary effects across the economy. Just curious as to what kind of course might the Fed follow in the second half? How did they achieve that soft landing? And I'm curious from your vantage point, David, what might cause the Fed to change course, given what we've heard thus far, given what we're anticipating over the next six months and perhaps even into 2023? Well, I think the key thing here is inflation. So as I said, the, 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 uh, we're going to get a consumption deflation report later on this week, but we already know that's going to be pretty, pretty uh, bad. Um, and then we also get a, um, we're, we're going to get uh, CPI inflation numbers um, in, uh, let me just see when the, the, the uh, we're going to get CPI inflation reports on um, in, I think that the 13th of July um, and uh, for, for the month of June. And that's also going to show strong inflation. But when I look at the numbers, all the numbers that feed into inflation, I think that the July CPI report is going to be a good deal weaker. It's going to show like one or two tenths of percent growth. Same thing in the August report. Um, and those reports come out on August 10th and September 13th, respectively. Now, the Federal Reserve, the next meeting is the end of July, and I expect them to raise rates another probably 50 basis points at that time. But when they get to that September meeting, they will probably have, I think they'll have two months of weaker CPI inflation in the bag. And that really will give them an excuse to say, okay, look, we think we're breaking the back of this thing or inflation, they'll probably take credit for it, but we think inflation is rolling over. And I think at that point they may change their tune. So I'm really looking to the September meeting as a time that they can change their tune with two moderate inflation reports um, in hand uh, from the months of July and August. What about your thoughts, Jason, as to what we can expect to see from the Fed over the next six months and the timing, if the Fed does change their policy course, when might that occur and what would be the cause of it? Well, I agree with David that September is probably the first realistic time on which they could make some sort of change. In July, they will very likely go 75 basis points. You know, there's a lot of data that come up between now and when they meet. It's about a month away. So that the, that could change. But considering where their, their policy rate is still less than 10%, if they hike 75 basis points, then they get into the range of what they would deem to be neutral. So policy isn't even restrictive. So I think at a minimum, they want to get to neutral you know, quite quickly. So that seems like that's pretty much a done deal. And given inflation numbers will still be very elevated, especially headline numbers. I think it's hard for them to, to pivot. You know, I, I hope David's right in terms of inflation sort of declining more than expected for the you know the the July and August readings that we get uh, later this summer. Um, but you know, the past year of inflation surprising to the upside rather than downside, you know, it's kind of you know, kind of keeps me a little shy from having that confidence. I think the key thing ultimately for the Fed is you know is, is the core numbers coming down, the things that they can sort of have more influence on. The issue, with, at least in the summer, is that you know some prices, the commodity prices, especially gas prices, could stay high. They could even go even higher, in which case the headline CPI could, could stay around eight eight and a half percent. They've already, for good or bad, sort of planted their flag in the ground when Powell said, you know, we care about headline CPI. So it's saying it's really difficult for them to pivot to get you know more dovish when those numbers are still really high, even if the core is maybe falling a little more than expected especially heading into, you know, the fall with the election season. So, you know, I think to to get that to happen, it wouldn't just be the inflation data, but I think you'd have to probably see also, you know, a clear slowdown in economic activity, particularly in the the labor market. So, for example, if we got, 
you know, uh, payroll numbers for, for June, July, but also in August where it's training, you know, below 100,000 unemployment claims are going up. So then you not only have inflation moderating, but the labor market starting to weaken. And we know that tends to be a lagging indicator for economic activity. I think that would be probably what would you know, start to push the Fed to, to potentially do only say 25 basis points in September rather than say 50 and maybe even pause. So it's, it's it has to be, I think, you know, something more in terms of clear slowing and evidence of slowing in the labor market for the Fed to move as soon as September. But if they do something in September, I think I think the rest of the year, whether it's 25s, those become more toss-ups. Because at that point, the Fed maybe hikes rates ultimately 3%, but not even the 3.4 that they forecasted for year-end just a couple of weeks ago. Um, so I'm, I'm curious, David, just on, on the late, like, you know, their pain points, you know, we know it's sort of ideal if inflation comes down, that makes it easier. But what would you say is the pain point in which they say, Right now, on the growth front, things are slowing too much, so we have to, to pivot. Even inflation is comfortably high. That's kind of you know, the reaction function. We don't know, but what do you think? You know, they would sort of say this is this is too much. Yeah, and I I, I tend to agree with uh, your your sort of characterization of it. The, the Federal Reserve has been very focused on the labor market for many years, and the problem is we've just got a very weird labor market right now. Not just because of uh, labor demand, but because of labor supply. And it could be, you know, we've got a massive excess um, of job openings over unemployed workers right now. And what that could mean is that even if final demand was softening, um, employment growth stays pretty strong because companies are busy filling the positions that they advertised, you know, six months ago. Finally, they find somebody who'll do the job. So, okay, you're hired, even as as demand begins to weaken. And that could give the Federal Reserve the impression that there's more momentum in the economy than there actually is. Um, and so I think that that's a very interesting point, and I hope that they're able to look through the weirdness of the labor markets and realize, you know, we really do need to kind of focus on final demand here, because if the final demand continues to be weak or weakens um, because of exports, because of housing, because of consumer spending, then the labor market is eventually going to roll over too. But I agree, you know, I think that's, that's a really key issue, is that will the labor market remain relatively strong because of all this, these, uh, these excess job openings, even if the economy is slowing. One other thing that I think is really important here, and it's a complete imponderable, is could you get a ceasefire in Ukraine at some stage? Um, because it's, you know, the, the uh, I mean, it's a horrible, murderous campaign that, that Putin engaged in, but, and it's a terrible blunder in terms of strategic blunder for Russia, which will set them back decades. But if at some level in the Russian government, either Putin himself or those around Putin want a way out, you could see how they might try and consolidate the position in the east back off in the west of Ukraine. And then you're stuck in a stalemate where both, you know, where the Ukrainian government and army are not strong enough to dislodge the Russians from eastern Ukraine, nor are the Russians strong enough to take over all of Ukraine, which is what their initial goal seemed to be. But if you're left in that situation, then both sides might, you know, I mean, I mean this will be a blood feud that will last generations now. But you could see why it'd be in both sides' interest to, to have, declare a ceasefire and then, uh, with the Russians occupying the Donbass region and then sort of negotiate a gradual, well, if you pull out of this or if you allow for elections in these places, then maybe we, uh, uh, we relax some Western sanctions or, or whatever. And you could see how you could sort of slowly back away from confrontation in that environment. So I think... What happens with uh, what Russia's intentions in the long run are with regard to Ukraine could be very important for these financial markets. Because if, you know, if tomorrow we saw a headline that, that uh, there was a ceasefire in Ukraine, I think you'd suddenly see some global energy and food prices uh, uh, come down. 
and that could have a significant impact in reducing inflation pressures. So we've covered economic expectations as well as macro considerations. David, I'm curious to hear about your outlook for interest rates, specifically the 10-year Treasury yield as we're speaking this morning. It's at around the 3 spot 1.7. From your vantage point, David, does it go much higher or perhaps will it tick lower? I mean, of course, it could go higher in the next few months, particularly if we get some bad inflation prints. But my guess is it actually rolls over and comes lower because I think inflation will roll over, growth will roll, roll over. As I said, it's really important, which you know, for the for the for every everybody that inflation rolls over first, if at all possible. But either way, nominal GDP growth is going to slow. I think the Fed's eventually going to have to back off from its aggressive tightening here, and I think that uh, probably pulls long rates down. So. If I had to guess a year from now, I'd say that the uh, 10-year bond yield is actually lower than it is today. What about your expectations, Jason, for rates? I would agree with that. In terms of you know, the, where we are six months, or particularly 12 months from now, I think that the 10-year is lower than you know where we are today. <clears throat> it may take time to, to move in that direction because, again, it kind of comes down to what the inflation data is. If inflation stays elevated for the time being, and we're not quite sure just how far the Fed is willing to go, we could solve a 10-year in the range of, like, you know, Three, three, three and a quarter, three, three point four percent, something like where it's been for the past, you know, month or so to continue throughout the summer until there's there's kind of clear evidence of, of how we're going to evolve. So I, I wouldn't expect a big change in that between now and set of September, but you know, if inflation comes down, that that certainly changes that dynamic. That would bring inflate, that would bring the ten year yield, you know, down because the Fed won't have to hike as much. Um, similar, if we end up getting a recession, well, then you have a really situation where the Fed's at some point going to start cutting rates and the 10-year probably falls to like 1.5% or, or less than, far less than where it is. And that's kind of where it was in, into the past, you know, kind of sort of recession type environment, except during the depths of the pandemic. To get rates to go a lot higher, you just need one of two things. You know, I think ultimately it's, it turns out that actually growth is much more resilient uh, and inflation does moderate to a level that's, you know, getting more comfortable, but rate growth is still holding up. And therefore, you just need to kind of reprice kind of almost what is a neutral policy rate and what is a therefore neutral sort of 10-year 10, 10 treasury yield. So it could go a little bit higher in that case, which seems at this point in time unlikely to happen any any point soon. So the more likely scenario to drive the 10-year higher is that inflation just stays persistently high uh, and the Fed has to go more aggressive. And that could be because, you know, the supply side issues don't get better. The situation in Ukraine, as David outlined, like, you know, doesn't sort of go in the right direction as we would hope, but in fact, actually kind of continues to get worse. And there's further supply disruptions. Uh, you know, China has further lockdowns due to COVID throughout the summer into the fall that further dis- you know disrupt supply chains. Um, and maybe the labor market, you know, just demand stays really strong because the imbalance between the demand for workers and the supply of workers is so out of balance that wage growth isn't going to moderate anytime soon. And therefore, inflation while coming down is staying at a comfortably high level and forcing the Fed to go even more aggressive. So you get, I think, a situation like that would push rates higher. But I think all other situations, rates are, are the 10 years kind of, you know, flattish for the time being and then kind of drifting lower next year. Maybe moving into equity markets for a few moments. So, David, we are, of course, officially in an equity bear market at this point. Curious to hear your thoughts in terms of duration. How long might we be in this? Do we see more downside from here? And what might be necessary to bring this bear market to an end and, in turn, start a new bull market? Well, I mean, the recent history suggests that bull markets can start pretty fast. Um, so, um, there, you know, I think, the, I think the fall in the markets this year, given, given um, everything that's going on, is perfectly reasonable and justifiable. Uh, but the reality is that 
forward PE ratios are now uh, below 25-year average levels. Uh, so I, I, I feel pretty good about the overall value of the market, particularly when you get out of the, you know, you get beyond the index and you look at value stocks, um, you look at, um, you, know, you know, the non-mega-cap stocks in the, in the index. I think there's, there's plenty of value there. Um, it, of course, we could we could see see further declines, but um, I, I think I also think that you know there's an awful lot of cash that's sitting around. That people have got very negative sentiment. Investors have got very negative sentiment. It's almost like the market is primed for a rally here, if we get any bit of good good news at all. Now the best news would be a soft landing, uh, but even if we sort of teeter in the brink of recession, if it means the Federal Reserve, it's as long as the inflation numbers come down, the Federal Reserve is able to. Uh, put in a, uh, uh, or, you know, uh, back away from its very hawkish stance. I think that could be positive for the, for the equity market. So it, it's very difficult to time this. The one thing I'd say is that over the years, I've found that investing based on valuations rather than timing tends to work out better. And uh, valuations are looking quite attractive right now for U.S. value equities, um, for non-mega cap U.S. equities, and also, of course, for international equities. Uh, what about your thoughts on equities, Jason? Uh, look, in, in the near term, you know, the markets could go a little bit higher. You know, it's sort of positive news, but all we can, all it would take is like a one data point or two data points that are disappointing on inflation and things reverse. And we saw that you know what happened, uh, you know, last Friday, where it was a better than expected downward revision for the University of Michigan long-term inflation expectations. Uh, to like 3.1% from 3.3, that caused you know the markets to move higher, ultimately going to close up 3% for the day. That, that was the primary catalyst. So in general, economic uh, the equity markets are very sensitive to you know sort of you know, key data points, and we can see you know the markets going up or down you know 10 percentage points you know very quickly. The one thing that I, I would say is there hasn't really been any kind of significant downward revisions to earnings, and that's kind of the thoughts in the marketplace that we've had this derating. The next year to drop is there going to be earnings downgrades. You know, whether they materialize, that, you know, that remains to be seen. Companies haven't necessarily given much of on mass sort of significant guidance. We will probably start to get a little more clarity on that during the second quarter earnings season. That starts in a few weeks. Uh, but it may even take longer for, that for companies to really say, you know, well, our earnings outlook is going to be less than we expected or, or the, the market is more challenging and the economy is more challenging. Therefore, you get analysts to start to bring down those numbers. If they do, I think that's the leg to get, you know, sort of touch new lows on this cycle. But from kind of where we've been, you know, we don't, we don't see significant downside from here. You know, in our base case, basically, we're saying equities are sort of closed flat from this point in time. And I would agree that with David, that you know, if you're taking a long-term perspective, the valuations look much, much more interesting today than they did back on January 2nd and 3rd, and especially in pockets of the market that, you know, weren't even that expensive to begin with. Like, I think small caps are starting to look quite attractive, emerging markets, things like that. But that kind of, you know, kind of pivots to like a question I wanted to follow up with you, David, regarding growth stocks. Clearly, the underperformers this year in an environment where, you know, a soft landing that would suggest some of these, you know, value stocks could continue to perform. But do you think it's just from a valuation perspective, there's, there's stuff that's scope for, for value to outperform growth. But given that we've seen this year almost like a dot-com bubble unwind, do you think there's just sort of more momentum and there's more derating that has to go on in the growth space before that kind of hits the bottom? Or if we get a soft landing, that will be sufficient for growth to also kind of balance, maybe not quite as much as, as other parts of the market. Yeah, I, I don't think we've seen a full appropriate re-rating of valuations here. So we went through, you know, we had, we had years in which growth was beating value and people were putting more and more money into more speculative um, stocks, but also into things like Bitcoin and NFTs and meme stocks and, and the like. 
and mega cap growth stocks. And we, 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 we saw years of that uh, with very, very low interest rates really funneling money towards the, these areas. And I think that that just got valuations, relative valuations, completely out of whack. We've seen a fair amount of reversal of that so far this year with a lot of these uh, biggest growth stocks and some of the um, more speculative things in markets really taking a hammering. But I, I still think it's got some room to go. I mean, pe- people have asked me, you know, well, uh, I mean, we know interest rates have backed up, but should growth stocks really have been that sensitive to interest rates? The answer is, well, well, not really, but but it's, it wasn't just, this is not just a rational reaction to interest rate moves. It's, it's really a taking the air out of what had become something of a bubble in, in some of these uh, particularly large cap growth, growth stocks. I think it's got some room to run because even if long-term rates back off, I think short-term rates will continue to back up a bit here. And, you know, it will no longer be the case that the carrying cost of, of a crazy idea is zero. Uh, and I think that that will tend to continue to punish stocks which aren't, uh, you know, don't look uh, you know, uh, correctly valued based on the fundamentals. So I think there's still some room to run here. I, I do recognize that if, if rates come down, I expect growth stocks to get a, get a bit of a kick. Uh, yeah, I, I do do a bit better here, but I'd still be a little overweight value just based on valuations. I mean, one one way of looking at this is if you go back over the last 25 years, on average, value stocks have sold at 72% of the P/E ratio of growth stocks. Today, they're selling at 60% of the P/E ratio of growth stocks. That means that they'd have to go up by 20% uh, from here uh, just to get back to their normal relationship to growth stocks in terms of P.E. ratios. And so I think, I think value does still look more attractive. And I think even you know, regardless of the macro scenario that plays out over the next few years, I would expect that gap between growth and value to close further with value doing better than growth. I would just concur with what David said. I think you know, the valuations still favor value, and there's definitely scope for, for catch-up um, you know, in the coming years, coming quarters, depending on how the macro environment exactly plays out. Thank you, Jason. So I know we just have a few moments remaining, so perhaps in the way of final thoughts and takeaways, we can spend the time on asset allocation positioning in light of the environment and uh, the outlooks that you've both shared with us. So David, based on your economic and market expectations, which do entail a combination of high uncertainty as well as volatility over the next six months. What, from your vantage point, David, should investors be doing to prepare and protect their portfolios? Well, of course, be be very broadly diversified. Um, Keep a close eye on valuations. I think you can afford to be longer duration now in fixed income. Uh, I think the downside risk of you know rates rising very rapidly from here is much less. And if we do fall into recession, I'd expect a significant rally in long-term bonds, which can protect a portfolio. Um, I I feel you know as Jason and I both think that uh, U.S. equities look much more attractive now than they did at the start of the year, given current valuations. Um, but I also would still probably favor international equities over U.S. equities, partly because if the U.S rolls over here in terms of inflation and growth, and the U.S. Um, has to become more, um, or the Federal Reserve becomes more more dovish or rather less hawkish, um, I think the Europeans will have a, a, a stickier inflation problem. I think the Europeans may well end up being t- you know, tightening even as the Federal Reserve gets, gets a little more 
uh, a little bit more dovish. So um, I'd still be a little weight over, uh, overweight international, but I think I, I like equities a, a lot more here. You know, what would I be underweight? I'd still be underweight mega cap growth stocks. I'd still be underweight things like Bitcoin and so forth. Uh, but I'd also be underweight cash. I mean, people are, have piled money into cash because of all the uncertainty that we've seen here. Cash holdings are very high. Uh, but I do think that this is a time when markets can rally. And you know, the, the last point I'd make is something we show in our guide to the markets. It's one of the charts I, I like the best is um, we go back over 50 years and we look at the index of consumer sentiments. Now, you know that index last Friday hit its lowest level ever at, a, at an index reading of 50. But it turns out that if you go back historically and you buy the S&P 500 when sentiment is at its best, at its peaks, um, you make about 4, 4% or so or 4.9% over the next 12 months. If you bought the index at its trough when people feel the worst, you actually make about 25%. Now, I'm not, not, not making any claim they're going to make 25% in equities over the next a year, but historically, when people feel very gloomy, very uncertain, turns out that that's a great time to buy equities historically. And I think people should be a little bit brave here and put money to work. It's not just about protecting against recession, it really is about preparing for the next expansion because, after all, this is still an economy of long summers and short winters, long expansions, short recessions. So you really need to think long-term, think about how to grow a portfolio, not just how to protect a portfolio. Thank you, David. Uh, Jason, same question for you in similar context, how investors should consider asset allocation and consideration of the economic market outlook you've shared with us and what's to be expected over the next six months. Well, there's a few points I would kind of flag. First, I think consistent with everything we said on the call, you know, this is not an environment where I think any of us have really high conviction, and therefore you shouldn't position your portfolio specifically for one scenario play now, because if it works out, great, but I think there's a lot of other situations. If it's wrong, then you could really be kind of caught on, on the other side of, of how the markets perform. On uh, the same token, sort of not making strong directional views in your in your portfolio in terms of significant upside or downside, at least at this point in time. Uh, I'd probably be a little more cautious in terms of you know, portfolio position than David described. You're tilting maybe more towards higher quality, a little more defensive assets, given that there could be some choppiness in the, in the near term. But that doesn't mean sort of de-risking. And I agree with the point in terms of like putting cash to work. You know, there's definitely long-term value opportunities right now. I think there's a temptation then to think, well, there's a recession coming, and therefore I want to de-risk my portfolio. One, equities are already down. At some point, they were down like 23%, the S&P 100 from its peak. A typical recession, you're down 32 34%. So you're two-thirds of the way there. So the bulk of the move has happened. And if you do want to de-risk and sell equities, I think you have to do it in a way you, it's a two-stage plan. You know, If you do it now for the reasons you think a recession is coming, you need to have a plan like, well, when do you want to buy back? Because the markets can pivot very quickly. The Fed can change its tune. And suddenly, equities move up very quickly, like 6 7% in one week. And ultimately, then whatever level you sell at now, you end up paying back, you know, you know, maybe not that much below or even higher. And it's important to remember that, you know, being underinvested when the markets are rising is just as painful as being invested when the markets are falling. So, you know, trying to time it at these levels is, is probably you know, too cute. I think the better strategy ultimately is to um, think long term. And that sort of reinforces the view for kind of value stocks from that perspective. Commodities recently have been you know, hit hard as people are concerned about slowing growth. I think there's still, from a fundamental perspective, some upside there, and it's a, it's a good hedge if, if you know, geopolitical matters you know, persist. I might be a little, be a little more cautious than David on European equities, only because you know it's possible that in the next two weeks the Russians decide they don't want to turn on the pipelines back with natural gas to Europe. 
um, and suddenly Europe is caught with like really not enough energy and they start up to ration. And if they don't do that, then the you know, recession almost becomes inevitable, which means earnings are cut. That's a really hard thing to forecast. It's almost kind of a binary outcome. And then because of that, in, in the very near term, I'd be kind of cautious until we get some sense of how exactly the situation in the next one to two quarters with Russia and Ukraine could play out. Well, Jason, David, thank you very much for spending some time with our clients, our listeners. You covered a lot of timely ground and left our listeners with a lot to consider. Looking forward to, at some point, picking back up with our conversation. You're welcome. Thank you. UBS Chief Investment Office's investment views are prepared and published by the Global Wealth Management Business of UBS AG or its affiliates. The views and opinions expressed in this material by external guest speakers are those of the author, speaker, and are not those of UBS, its subsidiaries, or affiliates. Accordingly, UBS does not accept any liability over the content of this material or any claims, losses, or damages arising from the use or reliance of all or any part thereof. This material has no regard to the specific investment objectives, financial situation, or particular needs of any specific recipient, and is published for informational purposes only. For a full legal disclaimer applicable to the independent investment views produced by UBS, please visit our website at ubs.com forward slash CIO disclaimer. 